continuing our series. We've got a few more weeks left in this. Habakkuk chapter 2. This series has been entitled When God Doesn't, and a, a lot of it kind of stems from the first couple of messages. You know, when God doesn't make sense, when God doesn't meet our expectations, and we're trying to answer some of those questions that Habakkuk has in his life that I think many of us have at times, whether we are willing to admit it or not. And we're going to look at a very interesting portion of Scripture this morning, chapter 2, verses 4 through 20. And we will continue in the narrative today, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4 through 20. All right, trying to get things uh, situated back in my mind. It's tough having a three-year-old trying to transition them into children's church and focus on that. All right, uh, let me start with a question this morning. Simple question, yet challenging question. To you, what is faith? What is faith? Anybody want to venture a guess first? David? Giving up control. Giving up control? Okay, it's very good. What is faith? Anybody else? To you, what is faith? Mike? Trusting God and obeying Him even when you can't see Him. Trusting God and obeying Him even when you can't see Him. Ken? Just accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Accepting Jesus. Oh, you're going to go to heaven. Exactly, yeah. That's good. Those are all good so far. Very good. Anybody else? What is faith to you? Faith to you. Anybody? Venture a guess. Everybody's like, nah, it's, they already used mine. Anybody at all? Anybody at all? Going once. Amanda. So I saw this That's good. That's good. Let me uh, let me read that just in case people didn't hear it. I think she found it on Google or a Facebook meme. Instagram. Oh, Instagram. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, that's good too. Faith is acting like it is so, even when it is not so, in order that it might be so, simply because God said it is so. That's good. Awesome. Just kidding. Thank you. All right. How many struggle? How, how many honestly? How many struggle with? having faith, having faith in God when times are trying, when times are tough. I think a lot of us could say that. A lot of us could answer that honestly. Let me ask another question. We're going to ask a couple more in our EQ time today. But what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you to lose it all? What does it mean to lose it all? Again, simple yet weighted questions today. What does it mean to lose it all? Christina? Like you failed. Okay, it's good. What else? What does it mean to lose it all? What's that? To have nothing. It's good. What else? Mark has got anything? I would say, Yeah, kind of losing control. That's good. Anybody else? What does it mean to lose it all to you? Man, you guys are all just ready to, to answer this morning. It's just, this is great. This is awesome. You guys get enough sleep last night? Oh, Michael, sorry, I didn't see it. He was like, I got, I got it, something right here. Raise it up. Stand up. Testify. To squander things away. To squander things away. Are you good at that? Yeah. Okay, okay. That's why he's saying that. He's a good squanderer. Any good squanderers out there? All right, we've got a couple of honest people. <laughs> uh, that'll be next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that Faith is a very important topic in the Bible and God's Word. And we're going to look at that aspect this morning, but we're also going to look at it in the aspect of losing it all. Now, you know, a lot of people, you think about it, a lot of people would not go to a bookstore 
and try to find a book, How to Lose It All. Like, anybody would, probably not, right? You're going to try to find those self-help books, like how to gain it all, how to have success in life, how to thrive, and all those things. How can I shop more without my husband knowing? Uh, All kinds of stuff. You're not going to typically go to the bookstore or Amazon or Kindle. Try to find a book, How to Lose Everything. But the reason I'm saying this, because the passage this morning we're going to look at, verses 4 through 20, is really a great warning that God is giving to Habakkuk. Because remember, this is a conversation between God and Habakkuk. Habakkuk is pouring out his heart to God. God has already answered him once, and it wasn't the way that Habakkuk intended that God was going to answer, and he didn't necessarily feel like God was going to answer that way. But it was basically, hey, I'm going to use another evil entity to judge you, to judge the, 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 the children of Judah. And again, as we've related in our own situation, it would be like God using a very, very uh, horrible terroristic organization to come and judge us as a church or the church in general. So in Habakkuk's mind, it doesn't make sense. And then in chapter 2, as Habakkuk has already, again, continued to pour his heart out to God and not understanding God's seeming inconsistency for all that is going on, God then answers him and, and basically tells him some things and explains what he is going to do. But again, God's timing is not always our timing. We have to understand that. That God does work and he doesn't put up with injustice. He doesn't put up with people attacking his own. He will vindicate all of that, but we have to wait on his timing. So let's go ahead and start in verse number four this morning. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. And this is kind of where we left off last week. But the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. Again, as I mentioned briefly last week, this was kind of a uh, calling card in the Reformation. Martin Luther and, and others use this verse that is actually used in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. I think it's in Romans and Galatians where he talks about the just living by their faith. And we're going to explain that just a little bit this morning before we dive into it. But then in verses 5 through 20, verses 6 through 20 really, God gives a series of woes, or really you can say this, it's a series of warnings that what is going to happen to Babylon, because Babylon is a wicked nation. They have done some wicked, uh, unjust things, and Habakkuk knows that. God knows that. He's not put it off, you know, in the back burner and, hey, it doesn't really matter. No, he knows that. So he is giving warning to Habakkuk of what is going to happen if, if Babylon continues down this path, but really also for Judah. If you continue down this path, there's something that is going to happen to you. And really, the application, we can apply the Bible in so many ways to us. We have to realize that it is written to a specific group of people, but the application is still true today. And really what we're going to see today is five different warnings or woes of what happens if you don't trust God, if you don't cling to Him in faith, if you don't give your life to Him, and if you live for yourself instead of living for God, these things are going to lead to your demise. Habakkuk had been struggling with the idea, is God fair? Why would God do such a thing? His suffering and what God was saying did not make sense. Many of us understand suffering in our own way. Corey Ten Boom, she knew something about suffering as well. She lived with a very courageous faith, and upon emerging from a Nazi concentration camp, she said this, There is no pit so deep that God isn't deeper still. It might seem like our pit is very deep, and we can't escape it. God's not listening to us. But the truth is, God does hear. He does listen. 
And Corey Ten Boom picked a very apt analogy because pain and tragedy is a pit. For some, it appears bottomless. Many experience that falling, that disorientation, terror, as they grab for walls that are out of reach. They see only blackness and hear only echoes of, of the life that they used to know. Look, pain is real. I think we all understand that this morning. But so is God. And that's where our faith must come in. You see, faith reminds us that we must not only grasp God's design for our lives, but we must learn to trust. We must learn to believe. And I think I made this point last week, but really the application point here is this. Faith isn't just a word we say, it's a lifestyle we should adopt. It's not just a word we say, it's a lifestyle we should adopt. And that's what God is trying to get across to Habakkuk here this morning. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll continue on. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. And Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach your word this morning. God, you've showed me so much already in the three or four weeks that we have done this series. Lord, I pray that you'd help our, our church, the ones that are here, the ones that are watching online or maybe listen to it later. God, I pray that you would help them to understand this very simple, challenging message today from your word. Lord, if we continue down the path of sin, of selfishness, of covetousness, of greed, it's going to lead to our destruction. So God, I pray that even when things don't make sense, help us to continue to have faith in you that you will work things out for your good and glory. And everything in this earth is to promote your glory, to advance your kingdom. And we have to realize that we are not put on this earth for ourselves. We are placed on this earth for you. And you see the injustice. You see all of the the turmoil, the strife, the tragedy, the pain that many Christians have to suffer through and endure, the heartache. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us understand that if there are evil entities out there that are attacking Christians and attacking the church and doing things that don't make sense, and in our mind, God, when are you ever going to punish them? We have to realize this Habakkuk will and is starting to as we finish this passage today, that your timing isn't always our timing, but you have a plan and you have a purpose. And God, as we even looked at last week, I pray that you'd help us to continue to cling to you and trust as the illustration of Blondin was given. All we must do is stop trying and cling to you and trust and realize that you are our Heavenly Father and you have a purpose, you have a plan. Heavenly Father, we love you and I pray that you bless again. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Again, faith is not just a word we say. It's a lifestyle we adopt. You know, faith is a lifestyle that is opposite of being puffed up. And what I mean by that is being puffed up in our pride and deepening our own resources. It has been well said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It is obeying in spite of consequence and resting in God's faithfulness. You see, faith moves people from doubts, from fear, to confidence and trust. And there are a lot of people in our society today, because we can make the application to us, there are a lot of people in our society today that are very fearful of what is going on in the world. There's a lot of people in the church that are very fearful of what is going on in the church, and is the church going to continue? Is the the church going to even make a difference in this wicked, unjust society? Well, this is where our faith comes in, and that's where... God is saying to Habakkuk in verse number 4, and here's the first point of emphasis that we have to make this morning. By faith, you live. 
By faith you live. He says in verse 4, the just shall live by his faith. You know, the thing I love about God, he gets right to the point. You know, a lot of times Sundays and Wednesdays, you know, as I'm sitting over there and kind of reviewing, just kind of going through again my notes, Nate kind of scrolls through. He's like, you're going to preach all that? It's like, Dad, you don't need to preach all that. You don't need to give them everything. You don't need to explain everything. I'm like, Nate, I do need to explain some things. But when God gives us things, he does, he does explain it, but he doesn't always give us, you know, 100 points. Here's the 100 points you have to follow. He gets right to the point of what it is. Now, we try to explain it as a preacher to help us understand, but he doesn't give a 10-point answer for Habakkuk. He simply tells him to trust me, to follow my instructions. And you think about this verse, the just shall live by his faith. How can one be counted or numbered among the righteous? The answer is simple. Faith. It's not the deeds of the righteous man that saved them. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we are saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And you think about it, this is a powerful promise today in trying times. As we ponder the prospect of terror, of the coronavirus, of our national debt skyrocketing, of all kinds of things in this world, what we have to realize is that we have to have faith in God. We have to have faith in God because by faith we live. Now, here's the point. Faith in what? You see, as I've said many times before, faith must always have an object. So who or what is the object of your faith? For some, it's their job. For some, it's money. For some, it's a relationship. For some, it's a lot of different things. But as a Christian, the object of our faith must always be God. Plain and simply. In Habakkuk, God, how could you use Babylon, this wicked nation, to judge Judah? I mean, yes, I understand that they're, now we have our problems. I get that, Lord, but they're so much worse than us. And it, that's what we do today. God, that person really needs to be judged. I don't, because I'm okay. I know what I'm supposed to do, but they really need to be judged. And again, faith needs an object, but here's what God is trying to teach, and he's what, what he's going to teach him today. Don't worry about Babylon, because they're going to get theirs, really is what God is saying here. They're going to get what is coming then. So don't worry about Babylon. I'm going to take care of them. And what we see here in the next 15, 16 verses, God gives five woes or taunt songs. And really, these five warnings are prevalent in our society today. You see, God is confirming that this mighty empire will be brought down and, here's, here, and I want you to write these things down, and we'll try to make an application quickly and probably even a little bit more in our EQ time today. Look at verse number 5. Yea, also because he transgresseth, transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire at hell, and is his death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathered unto him all nations, and heapeth unto all people. Verse 6, a lot of the wording, it, it, it's difficult to understand, that's why we'll try to explain it here. Shall not all these things take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee? And thou shalt be for booties unto them 
Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood, and for the violence of the hand of the land, sorry, of the city and of all that dwell therein. So the first warning that God is giving to Habakkuk of what Babylon struggles with, and really what Judah and we struggle with today, is the warning or the sin of extortion. The sin of extortion. You see, this perfectly describes the Babylonians. When they took a city, they plundered it. They plundered its silver, its gold. They took their crop, their cattle. But, and, and most of us that have studied history, we know this, when another empire came in, they took what was not theirs, right? It wasn't theirs, but they took it because they wanted it. And here's the truth. We do the same thing today in our society. Someone else has something we want, so I deserve that, right? You give it to me. And really, this is what Babylon is all about, that they're going in, they like something else. You know what? I like that. I want that. So it's mine. It's not yours. I don't care if you work for it. It's mine. And that's how they grew rich off the, really, misery of others. And the Babylonians were consumed by their own selfish ambition. And really, this isn't the message today, but many of us can be so consumed with our own selfish ambition of always trying to gain more and more and more. And we'll look at that the next point here in just a second. But they stopped at nothing to acquire wealth and expand their kingdom. They had a stockpile of stolen goods that they plundered and took from helpless individuals. And God warned them that the owners of this wealth would one day rise up against them, condemn them, and collect what was due. Verse 7 is basically telling us that the mockers will be mocked. The ones that have plundered will be plundered against. It's a basic law of the Bible and the universe that whatever you reap, you will sow. And the warning is this, that the victimizer will become the victim or the plunderer will be plundered. So the first sin, the first warning is the warning of those that use extortion. The second warning, let's continue on. It's the warning against covetousness. Look at verse number 9. Woe to him that coveteth in evil covetousness. Now we can talk a lot about covetousness. One preacher says this about covetousness. He says, covetousness is desiring something so much, listen to this, that you lose your contentment in God. Just let that sink in for a second. Covetousness, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment with God. He continues, he says, the opposite of covetousness is contentment in God. Is it wrong to want things? No, there's nothing wrong with wanting things. But here's the problem. Sometimes we want things so much that we covet after it, and we're going to do anything to get it. And we'll even hit on this here in a second, and even later. Here's the problem with a lot of us today, even in our church in America. We'll covet something so much that we realize, you know what? I don't have the money for this. But I have a credit card. So then we go into debt. Now, again, I've struggled with this. You've struggled with this. Many struggle with this even greater because I deserve this. I mean, I'm an American. I'm a Texan. I deserve all of this stuff. Everything on Amazon, they shouldn't have put it on there if they didn't want me to have it. Or whatever else that you use, right? Again, for me, it's like... Uh, um, 
What, face mask? <laughs> no, it's not face mask. Um, <laughs> all right, let's, let's go ahead and pray and dismiss today because it's getting out of hand. No, I was trying to think. For me, it's like, you know, it's, it's golf stuff. So I can't think of some of those websites. But, you know, for me, it's like, oh, I really need that club, even though I already have, you know, 15 sets. But I really need this one because it's really going to help. Or for some, it's like, I already have 48 guns, but I need another gun. Uh, if you think I'm talking to you, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I don't know. But whatever it is, I need another pair of shoes. Thank you, Amanda. Appreciate that. You know, I can only wear one a day, but I need at least 365, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, this is good. <laughs> so, you, you see where I'm going, that covetousness really... It destroys us as individuals and it destroys nations. But again, covetousness is opposite of contentment in God. Is it wrong to have things? No. Is it wrong to want things? No. But the problem is that we covet something so much that even the Bible talks about it leads to sin and oftentimes it leads to death. It leads to destruction. And you think about that. Do we really have contentment in God? Or do we believe that we'll find it when we buy that one more thing? If I just have this one thing, if I just have this, oh, what's coming to my mind? Hummer. I don't know why that came to my mind. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just giving a hard time. Hummer. For me, it's like, you know, a nice new truck or something like that. If I just have this, everything will be good. If I just have the iPhone 48 with 68 cameras, everything will be great. Even though the camera's going to break, they're going to mess up. Covetousness, it... It's always wanting more and never being satisfied. That's the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm making is all of us, myself included, we're never satisfied with enough. You look at, and I've used this illustration before, but you look at sports. You know, they they win the championship and immediately, it's before like I'm going to Disney World, it's like, you know what, we've got to work for next year because we've got to win again. Because one championship is enough, two is not enough, five is not enough, ten is not enough. We need more and more and more. When does it stop? You think about your own home. When does it stop with the stuff that you acquire? How many have a lot of stuff in your attic and in your garage? I, I remember us, and again, most of it is me as well as Amanda, but when we first got married, we were like, you know what? We're not going to be those people that just have a bunch of junk in our attic. We had great intentions. <laughs> but then life happened. <laughs> and kids, but... It was like, oh, we got to decorate for Easter, we got to decorate for Christmas, and, and Kwanzaa, and Valentine's Day, and, and St. Patrick's Day. I don't even just, you know, random holidays. Um, you just acquire things. And then you acquire more and more and more, and Amanda is good about when she acquires more, she usually gets rid of more. I'm bad about I acquire more, and then I just keep it and put it in a box somewhere. <laughs> exactly. We're getting completely offhand. But... The point I'm making is that we oftentimes, we wrestle with this. We wrestle with this materialism, with this greed of never being satisfied. And that's, that's the warning that God is giving to Habakkuk. Ephesians 4.28, we're not going to read that for sake of time, but it says that there are really three ways to acquire wealth, that you can work for it, you can steal it, or you can receive it as a gift. The Babylonians took land that wasn't theirs in order to build their empire. Their greed led to their arrogance. And these verses, in part, refer to the walls of Babylon. Let's continue on. Woe to him that coveteth, in evil covetousness, to an house, 
that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Verse number 10. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and has sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. So what this is referring to is some of the walls that Babylon had built up. In some places they were as high as 100 feet tall, stretching at least 40 miles around the city. The Babylonians thought themselves invulnerable to attack. They believed that no one could ever breach their fortifications. But Jesus warned his disciples and even warns us in the New Testament of Luke, take heed and beware of covetousness because it leads to destruction. And the warning here is this, woe to the dishonest, the cheater, to the thief, because you will be shamed. Let's continue on. The third woe, the third warning, the third sin that is gripping the nation of Babylon that God is going to judge them for, that he is giving to Habakkuk to help them understand that Judah is going to be judged for this as well, is the sin of exploitation. So we have the sin of extortion, the sin of covetousness, but now it's the sin of exploitation. Look at verse number 12, chapter 2. Woe to him that buildeth the town with blood, establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for their vanity, for their pride. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So God kind of pauses here and redirects it back to him. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The point God was making is this, and when you study history, you see this. Babylon was built by bloodshed, by the blood of innocent victims. And Babylon was very proud in what she had built. But God said, it's not going to last. It's only going to fuel the fire. The city of Babylon was an architectural marvel, but their great projects were for nothing. And again, this aptly and mainly applies to Babylon, even to Judah. But I think we can apply it to us today because there are many nations that use military strength to conquer weak and defenseless individuals. But I think there's another application we can make that's not really a stretch for us today. Think about even America that has been built on bloodshed. I'm not even talking about all the wars. You know, I've read some statistics and even facts and kind of did my own fact-checking. Since like the 1970s, there's something like 55-plus million innocent lives that have been taken through abortion. And no matter what stance you have on that, killing in life, just because you don't want it, is wrong. It's murder. It's sin. So here's the thing. America is a great country, yes. But we can't overlook those things. And if God is saying that I'm, gonna, I'm going to judge Babylon one day, don't you think he's going to judge us too? Well, I wasn't part of that, but we're still lumped in. What have we done to try to stop it? I'm not saying go burn down those facilities. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm asking. But there are over 55 plus million babies in America that have been murdered through legal abortion since 1973. Surely this woe applies to us just as much as ancient Babylon. 
You know, this exploitation continues in the coming verses. But this is the sin of taking advantage of others to gain pleasure for yourself. But then as we get to verse 14, again, there's so much we can apply here. For sake of time, we won't. Verse 14, God kind of turns it back to himself. And he gives us a spectacular promise. Verse 14, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's glory, which once dwelt in a desert tent, then in the temple of Jerusalem, will one day fill the whole earth. You see, we have to speak this promise in the face of our fears. The whole earth will one day be filled with all of the knowledge, all of the glory of God. Dr. Ray Pritchard says this, God intends to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is indescribably significant that he mentions the earth. When he says that, he means it quite literally. He's talking about this ball of dirt that is the third rock from the sun. He means this earth that we currently inhabit. This same earth that had no room for the Son of God. This same earth that mocked his words and doubted his character. This same earth that refused to believe he was the Messiah. That falsely accused him. That preferred to let a guilty man go free over an innocent. That hated what he stood for. That accused him of being in a league with the devil. That beat him without mercy that made him carry his own cross, that crucified him between two thieves, that wretched, or that watched him die in agony, that same earth will one day be filled with God's glory. And God promised this amazing promise that the glory of Babylon is great at this time, but it will not last. But what will last is God's glory. And that's what we have to take heart in. That's what we have to take hope and find hope Certainly the Lord was glorified when Babylon fell before their enemies in uh, B.C. 539. He will be glorified, as we'll get to in Revelation, when Babylon, the, the world system, will fall. When Jesus Christ comes to return and establish His kingdom, then God's glory will indeed cover the whole earth. And here's the, the, the point of emphasis that we have to make. We cannot exploit people made in God's image and expect to escape God's judgment. It may take time, but eventually the judgment falls. You see, we're not there yet, but there will be a day when injustice is gone. And no matter how many parades we have, no matter how many politicians we have, it's not going to change anything with that. Injustice is going to be there, and it's going to magnify until the day that Jesus comes. And we are good in our society, and I know there's a lot of injustice, but we are good in our society of putting one group over another. But there's more than just two groups on this earth. There's a lot of ethnicities. There are a lot of people and cultures that have suffered through injustices, but we like to just excuse them and let's focus on one or two. Again, we're not there yet, but there will be a day when injustice is gone, when violence is gone, when terror is gone, when threats are gone, when sin is gone. And what a spectacular promise of hope. And the warning is, woe to the unrighteous builder, because you will be undone. And then verse 15, we continue. Woe unto him that giveth to his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, that makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also and let thy 
foreskin be uncovered, the cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and the shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. So the, the next woe, the next warning, the next sin is the sin of immorality. This is a very repulsive picture. And again, I don't try to read too much into God's word, but when you study this and when you study other passages, you understand the whole. God doesn't like immorality. He doesn't put up with it. But yet, our culture, it's okay. It's no big deal. It's like we say sometimes, everyone else is doing it, so why can't I? I mean, if, if others are doing it, I mean, surely God wouldn't judge me. No, no, no. There are certain things that God doesn't like. He abhors. He hates. And yet we're like, you know what? I don't really care. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. And this is a repulsive picture that can be interpreted both personally and nationally. You know, the Bible does warn against strong drink. There's many passages in Proverbs that talk about this. And what happens with this is that drunkenness and sensual behavior often go together. You can say they don't, but look at the lifestyle of people that get caught up in that, and eventually it will lead to that sensual behavior. And the specific example given is that of encouraging someone to get drunk so that you can take sexual advantage of them. And sadly, this still takes place today. This still, still takes place in our churches. Babylon used alcohol for illicit purposes. And that's one of the many reasons God brought them down. And the warning is, woe to the unrighteous builder because you will be undone. And then the final woe, and again, there's so much that we can unpack in these, but we don't have time. The final woe, the final warning, verse number 18. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. Verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This final woe, warning sin is the sin of idolatry. And I've talked about this before in depth, and there's so much here. But idolatry at its core is blasphemous because it directs worship to anything but the one who truly deserves our worship. And Paul gives a pretty good description of what idolatry is in Romans chapter 1 where he states that they worship and serve the creature more than the creator. You see, we've been talking about this on Wednesday nights as we've looked at that beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, the false prophet, the antichrist, and the great dragon, that pseudo-trinity. And we looked at the fact that Satan, everything he does is to counter God. He is a counterfeit. And when we think about it, idolatry, idols are nothing more than counterfeits. They are, get this, dead substitutes for a living God. Dead substitutes for a living God. I want you to write this passage down because there's so much in here we don't have time for it, but Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20. Reference that sometime. You know, Isaiah gives one of the clearest expositions of the folly of idolatry in the whole Bible. And that's where Habakkuk is getting at in verse number 19. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise. 
it shall teach. It'd be like, hey, speaker, come up and speak. Like, it's, it's not going to do anything. It's, there's no life. There's no life in this piano. There's no life in this platform. There's no life in those chairs. And the idol worshiper cannot even realize that his idol is nothing more than a fantasy. And people today like, well, I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't have this statue on my shelf and I, I bow myself down to it, you know, three times a day and pray to it. But again, idolatry is anything that we put before God. Anything. Anything that takes the rightful place of God is an idol. Because it's a counterfeit. It was never meant to sustain. Babylon was blinded by its own idolatry. And in due time, they would incur divine consequences for trusting in false gods. Here's the application to us today. You see, we've gone above and beyond statue worship. The way we elevate and worship politicians and athletes and rock stars and pop culture, we have put people up to be idols, to be gods that were never meant to be gods. We've elevated social positions to idolatry as well as vocation and achievement. This goes back to Habakkuk 1 verse 11 where the Babylonians, God says that their God was their strength. You know, for some of us today, our God is our own strength, our own power, our own accolades, our own achievement, our own vocation, our own money, our own wealth. Do we need to continue? You see, we have elevated other things ahead of the true and rightful place of God. And again, that's why there are problems in our society. That's why there are problems in church. Because at the core, most of us, honestly, and I'm not trying to be mean, but most of us are idolaters. It's been a problem since the garden. It's, be, it's going to be a problem that is going to continue even further to the book of Revelation when the end times come. Well, I'm saved. I'm not an idolater. But let, let's, let's, let's just look at your life. Let's look at my life. What is truly most important to you? My family is most important. God designed the family. But what comes before the family? God. Our relationship with him. And some people do that. They, they elevate a spouse. They elevate their children. They do everything for... Am I saying you shouldn't do anything for your spouse? You shouldn't do anything for your children? No. But we elevate people ahead of God. And then, you know what? I just don't have time for God this week. I don't have time for God today because I'm so busy about this. Again, it goes back to the Ecclesiastes series. Remember that balancing? Anybody remember that? Some, some of you here? You know, here, here's what we do. There are certain things in our life that are glass plates. I don't have a glass plate that I can drop and throw today, but we have certain glass plates that are breakable, right? That if you drop them, they're going to break. Those are the ones that we have to keep, in a sense, spinning. But what we do is we neglect the glass plates, the important things for the plastic plates, that if they fall, they fall, whatever. And the, the most important glass plate really is our relationship with God. Now, family is important. The church is important. All those things are important. Don't get me wrong. But here's the thing. Here's the truth. We can put good things ahead of the best thing. And the best thing is God. I'm not an idolater. I don't even know why you keep preaching on that kind of stuff. You are. Because I am. And I struggle with this just as much as you. And God has to, in a sense, slap me upside the head sometimes to help me understand that, hey, you've been putting this ahead of me. 
the time that you should be spending with me so that you can thrive and understand what it means to be a Christian and live on mission, you're not doing that because you're so focused on this. And I'm not against work. And I understand there are times where you have to work more. I get that. That's not what I'm saying. But there are times when people just willingly choose to put their work ahead of God for months and months and years and years and years. And I've seen it growing up in the ministry that sometimes people take a job knowingly it's going to take them out of church for a long, long period of time. And they think that's okay. It's quiet. But I have to work, preacher. Yes, you do. But don't you think God can provide for you in other avenues? Very quiet. You see, we elevate things that were never meant to be elevated. And I, trust me, I get there are times and seasons where there's no escaping it. There's no escaping the work that you have to do. That's, that's important. But, and I'm not trying to be on a pedestal here, but if God sent his son, Jesus, to die for the church, to give his life for the church, don't you think he thinks it's important? So then what are we doing when we say it's not that important and I'll come and go whenever I choose? Verse 20, as we continue on, God again shifts gears as he did in verse 14. He had talked about and really laid it out there. It's funny, in verse 19, you know, Hey, awake, you dumb stone. Arise, so you'll teach. (laughs) But it's nothing. It's just, it's laying there. It's breathless. It's lifeless. Verse 20, But the Lord, this is God, reiterating his value, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see, this verse provides contrast to the lifeless idols. God is in his temple. He is holy. He is majestic. And because of this, what he is telling Habakkuk is what he is telling us today. Stop all your activity and be silent before him. And this third assurance that God gives Habakkuk in this chapter, the first was focused on God's grace in verse 4. The second on his glory in verse 14. And now, on God's government. Listen, God is on the throne and has everything under his control. And there are passages that God speaks of this. Psalm 46.10 where he says, Be still and know that I am God. You see, sometimes we just have to be silent before him. So that we can see who he really is. Be still and know that I am God. The verse continues. Maybe you know it. Maybe you don't. But in Psalm 46.10 it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. Among the nations, I will be exalted among all people. And the warning here for Babylon, for Judah, for us, listen, this is serious. And Chapter 3, it's going to be another amazing study, amazing chapter, because Habakkuk finally, it's like he finally gets it. But the warning is, woe to you makers of speechless idols, because you will be silenced by the Almighty God. See, Habakkuk wondered if God would ever judge Babylon for their sin. He'd wondered if God is fair. 
But God was saying that, you know what? Babylon is going to lose it all. And even in the New Testament, Jesus tells this important truth. Matthew 16, hey, whoever wants to save his life, what's going to happen? You're actually going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me, and, and, and Mark talks a little bit different aspect, for me and the, the Gospels, the same will find it. So you try to save your life, you're out, in actuality, you're going to lose it. But if you try to lose your life or surrender to me, you're actually going to find life. You're going to gain what you need. But in Matthew 15 or, or Matthew 16, it says, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What if you gain the whole world, but if you lose your soul, it's worthless. You see, the people of this world clamor for, for wealth, for security, for power, for pleasure. They trust in idols in their own making rather than God, the God of heaven. But their labor is only fuel for the fire. They exhaust nothing in themselves. And here's what we discover in this chapter as we close it out. To the faithful Jews in the land, God would be a refuge and strength. But to the godless Babylonians, he would judge and eventually punish their sins. You see, God's ways are so far beyond, beyond our comprehension. Because, and I've used this before, so often our view of God is skewed, meaning that we only see what's right in front of us. I forgot to bring it, but imagine if we, and I'll use this, imagine if we were in a parade, and we've probably done this, you know, you kind of roll something up, kind of like a tele, telescope type thing, and you kind of look, and you can see things. But here's the truth. If I'm looking through this, hey, good to see you. If I'm looking through this, can I see everyone? No. You see, that, that in, in a sense, that's, that's our life. All we see is what's right in front of us. We don't see the whole picture. You know, kids do this sometimes because they're, they're rolling up things and, it, you know, it's cool to look through it and, and see individuals, but you only see a very small part of the picture. But, but God sees it all, doesn't he? He sees everything. You see, we often view life as though we are watching a parade with a rolled up magazine, but we can't see the whole parade. But God sees the beginning as well as the end. All we see is the present. And here's what this passage is boiling down to for us this morning. Faith pushes us to believe that God is too wise to make a mistake. See, when I often think of my struggles, a lot of them can come back to my own lack of faith in God or my view of God being too small. A big problem that many Christians have is that their view of God is distorted and they are worshiping a God that is entirely too small for them. So when it comes to living for God, we tend to look at Him like a necessary piece that would complete our life. Listen, it's as if we have our own little solar system and God was the missing planet. But we must realize that this is approaching God backwards. We want to be the center but the only way our life can be complete is when God is the center, not when we are the center. Faith is accepting what you cannot understand based on what you can understand. It's when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. Think about that. Faith is accepting what you cannot understand versus what you can understand. And what we can understand is that God is perfect, even though we don't make sense of it all a lot of times. 
when the unexplainable meets the undeniable, that God has never failed us, has never failed Habakkuk, and will not fail him, even though it's not going to be in his timetable. Look, God doesn't exist to complete my life. We exist for his glory. And that's what God is showing Habakkuk here in this section. God is the undeniable that meets us in our unexplainable state. So here's the question. Does our belief in God extend to our trust in God, faith in God? Does our faith become action? Every week I've given you a different action step so far in these first couple chapters, and I'll close with these. Here's what we're learning from Habakkuk's journey. First of all, we must learn to pour our heart out to God. Secondly, we must learn to see the bigger picture. Thirdly, wait for his reply. Fourth, cling to him in trust. And again, finally this this week, believe that God is too wise to make a mistake. Never once has God failed us. He's always been faithful. There's so many songs that are just running through my mind. and Even songs I was listening to this morning as I was just trying to prepare my heart. Never once has God let me down. And that's the point that he's trying to make to Habakkuk in chapter 3. Just an amazing chapter. A song, prayer from Habakkuk's heart to God. And we're going to see a man that was just, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you making sense? Okay, God, I get it. And I close with that point. Believe that God is too wise to make a mistake. He won't make a mistake. And chapter 2 is there for a warning. And honestly, many of us struggle with some of these five woes or warnings. And God is saying to us today, 2,600 years later, that if you want this to be your demise, then follow the path of extortion and exploitation and covetousness and immorality and idolatry. And it's not going to lead to a thriving Christian life. It's going to lead to destruction. But what you need is the continued renewed faith in God. He has always been there, always will be. Heads bowed, eyes closed.